So today we are looking at uh, another part of our trellis. We're talking about this concept uh, of this book from God in My Everything, which we're reading as, as small groups and going through as a church. We have about three or four more sermons left in the series. We're talking about the concept of building an intentional set of practices and ways of life that, sur- that support our life with Jesus, that help us to grow and to, to thrive. If you know what a trellis is, uh, when they say rule of life, they're talking about a trellis. And this is something that keeps a vine in the sunlight so it can receive and grow in a good and proper way. So we've been talking about different parts of this figurative trellis we're building for our lives. Sabbath, prayer, uh, the scripture, our bodies, uh, playing, our money, our friendship, our sexuality, our family. All these parts make up the trellis of our life. And today we're going to be looking at this part of our trellis called the restore part of the trellis, which is about play, which is about play. Who here has heard a sermon about play in church before? We're not accused often of being a lot of fun, are we? Not always. Sometimes we take ourselves a little too seriously, and we get, uh, we get pretty, uh, a reputation for being the killjoys, people that take away all the fun of life. But this is not the way it's supposed to be. In our book, Ken said this really helpful quote, He said, as we grow older, most of us begin to feel the pressure to be productive. It's funny because on NPR this morning, on the way to church, there was a news story about how uh, work-life balance and how other countries are doing it compared to the United States. Work-life balance is bad here. It's not good, including in ministry. Work-life balance not balanced in our country. So this is the air we're breathing. Even if you don't realize it, it's not very healthy here for us. So as we grow older, most of us begin to feel the pressure to be productive. We feel guilty when we take time to enjoy something or stop to play. Most adults don't even know what it means to play. And here's how he defines play. Play is doing something for its own sake. It might involve entranced absorption. A child can be transfixed at play. And even strenuous effort can be given to play that leads to joy and gratitude in the end. Play comes in a variety of forms, including crafts, painting, acting, dancing, hiking, sports, blowing bubbles, splashing in the water, laughing, joking. Whatever its expression, it helps us more fully appreciate how we live, move, and have our being in God. Maybe when you were a kid, you can think about uh, simple things that you did that you really enjoyed, and you can read in this chapter about his, his examples, but a really silly thing that my dad did with all of us kids. We lived on, on Secondaga Lake, and we would just hit a ball to each other. My dad called it the ancient game of ball. And it was, it was very simply keeping a ball in the air, you know, hitting it back and forth. And my dad loved to try to make us dive for it and cause all kinds of trouble. I think my dad was about, and so this is funny, because like four years ago, four or five years ago, I was at the lake with my dad, and we got to playing the ancient game of ball again, me as an adult and my dad. And the uh, ball got swept out into the lake, and it was like, a, like the really windy, and I was chasing after the ball, and my dad's like, it's not worth it, just let it go. You're going to die out there, son. But, you know, so that ancient ball w- was taken away. But a very simple, a, a joyful, fun, kind of like captivating, silly game that we enjoy. This is play. God has made us a playful people. No matter what our personality type 
no matter our temperament, we, are, we have a playful side to us. I, I've actually enjoyed when people feel accepted and affirmed in who they are as a person, when they feel that security, often the play comes out. You get, you know, I'm surprised they were joking around about that. That was kind of funny. Or there's something just delightful that kind of bubbles forward when the self-consciousness goes away, right? So play is doing something for its own sake. If we focus our time and energy only on the likes of prayer, study, or social justice, we can become overly intense, too serious. We lose our joy, our ability to laugh, to delight in the beauty around us. Ronald Rolheiser, in his book, The Holy Longing, says, Becoming like Jesus, Jesus is as much about having a relaxed and joyful heart as it is about believing and doing the right thing. As much about proper energy as about proper truth. There's a, part, there's a scripture that talks about casting your anxieties on the Lord because he cares for you. And it said, uh, Let your gentleness be known to all. The Lord is near. So, when the anxiety is coming forward, when we're feeling intense, when we're feeling very serious, we can remember the Lord is near, and he has grace and love for us. Our security is in him. We can, we can become gentle in our spirit. We can become soft because we don't believe that we're the end-all and be-all of our life. And I agree completely with that. I think it's important to learn to play. And I think that if the, the kind of research that's being done now of, of work-life balance and these types of ideas— I mean, this is actually cutting-edge psychology, science. Like, it's important that we explore this part of our life. People are dying young for lack of a carefree and joyful spirit, you know? There was a professor I had in college that, that had this huge reputation for being, like, an amazing teacher, um, a really intense teacher, and I was kind of scared to have him in my graduate studies. But he died a month before I started my graduate studies, and he, he died of a heart attack, and he was... A, he was just an intense dude who was, you know, by all accounts, just always striving, always pushing. He was a good man, but, you know, I'm not going to say that's all that killed the guy, but this, this stuff is not, it's not good for us to take ourselves too seriously, to lose our sense of play, excitement, joy, wonder. You know, when was the last time we sat and looked at anything for more than a few seconds uh, to see its complexity, you know, or to look at a tree and how it, how it moves or, or the changing of seasons? These are all parts of play, the creative Delighting in God's creation. Ken points out in the book that Jesus spent three and a half years of his life in full-time itinerant ministry, going from place to place, sharing about the kingdom of God, forgiving sins, healing diseases. And Jesus spent a week of his life, of those three and a half years, at a wedding celebration in Cana. These were week-long celebrations. And not only did he come to this celebration, he turned the water into wine in Cana. So, king of parties. You know, it, it, that's the thing is like, to be reverent doesn't mean to be, take yourself so seriously. In fact, I think that when you're reverent for God's glory, his presence, his power, and you realize the grace we've been given, as we'll talk about, it gives you the freedom to be a, be a, be a child, be a son, be a daughter. Um, I think that reverence leads to us being less intense and less self-absorbed and less um, self-conscious. Now, I'm probably preaching to the choir here. I think you guys are all great, and I, I, I love you all so much. But, you know, we all know some people in life that can suck, their presence can suck the joy and fun out of a room. Like, like this person came, cool, 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 oh, and they're here too. Um, 
<laughs> it's, it's a microscopic, it's not perceptible on any scientific scale, but something about their presence sucks the joy out, the, the seriousness they take themselves with, the intensity, the, you know, it's just a lot. We also know people whose very presence we anticipate eagerly that, on, that uh, we would gladly drive uh, a couple hours to just sit around a bonfire with that person because their very presence fills the room with joy, with laughter, a sense of, of, of acceptance of others, affirmation of other people, and grace. And uh, I, I, I'm thankful that I've had people like that in my life, that I eagerly anticipate being around them because I know it's going to be a huge blessing. Martin Sanders was one of those people, one, one of my, the father of my, my mentor who became a mentor to me in my graduate studies. He passed away two weeks ago. But, you know, we, we drive out to Nyack just to have a bonfire with Martin. You know, his affirmation, his calling things out of you, his love for you was a force that, um, that propelled you forward in life. The way he saw you, in a very real way, seemed to be the way that God saw you. You could believe things about God because this person who was a, a wonderful man of God with, with a lot of character saw those things in you as well. So those kind of people, boy, it all brings up this idea of, of play. Now, does that kind of paint a picture for you? The pe people that are carefree, people that are affirming and loving and gracious and kind and, and not self-conscious, not too self-serious. Um, play. We all need a little bit of play in our lives. And, you know, th there's nothing wrong with not having a temperament that's fun and bouncy at all. But we all need a little play in our lives, every single one of us. In the church I grew up in, and in all of my experiences as a Christian, I don't remember people talking about the value of play or fun um, as a serious topic, or maybe not so serious topic. It's play after all. But Ken puts it alongside other things in our trellis, like prayer and Sabbath keeping and scripture reading and community. Play is a part of that trellis for a reason. I think that all of us want to feel a sense of carefreeness in life. Remember years ago, I was having a stressful time in my life, and I commented to a friend, I sort of just want to get in my car and without anyone knowing, knowing where I'm going, just drive to Canada or just drive and drive and drive and drive. Just that sense of freedom, of, of escaping the constraints and just being playful, being spontaneous, not being, in a sense, um, beholden to anybody else, but to be free. I've had friends describe the very thing to me as well. To feel accepted, to feel loved, and to delight in that, to delight in that acceptance is an aspect of play without self-consciousness. Kids are, are great at play because they're not self-conscious. They become self-conscious as a natural part of growing up and changing and growing in hormones, but that, that, that place of, of carefree play is something that's in kids that also we'd benefit from having some of that in us as well. We would benefit from that. We could learn something from them. And in my experience, when play gets taken away, all these other spiritual disciplines we've talked about become uh, drained of their life, drained of their joy. And we just become too serious, taking ourselves too seriously. You know, without, without joy, without play, Sabbath keeping doesn't sound like much fun. It becomes, this is a drudgery, a thing that God requires of me to do, I'll do it for him. But really, it's just an inconvenience in my life. 
Um, but Sabbath was made for us, not us for the Sabbath. You know, Sabbath was meant to be a day to delight in your life, to honor God, to build relationship with your community and with your family. These are joyful things. And when you take play out of that equation, it sucks the joy right out of them. So anyone who knows me knows that, if anything, I like to play too much. So I'm, I'm on that end of the spectrum. Like an otter, they, only, they, they play with even their food, they play with their food. You know, that's, that would describe me pretty well when I'm at my best. That's my temperament. I do not agree that I play too much, though. I don't agree with that. When I was a child, my mother called me her Tigger, you know, from Winnie the Pooh. And I was known to memorize television commercials and recite them at my parents' gatherings with their other friends. Hi, I'm Bob Vila. You know, for years I've been helping average people turn their homes into their dream houses, like David and Marion Ford. They love this place, but they still need room for improvement. You know, I'd memorize the Bob Vila commercials. My, my, uh, I was just always like that. My mom read us those classic A.A. Milne books, The Complete Tales of Winnie the Pooh. And um, when I'm at my best, yeah, I'm kind of, kind of like that Tigger guy. When I feel loved and accepted by others, by God, by myself, that's who I am, you know? without that nasty self-consciousness. Tigger said of himself, the, the great poet, the wonderful thing about Tiggers, Tiggers are wonderful things. Tops are made out of rubber, their bottoms are made of springs. Bouncy, trouncy, bouncy, trouncy, fun, 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 fun. But the most wonderful thing about Tiggers is I'm the only one. Now, uh, in, our, in our small group, after we became comfortable with one another, we discussed this very real phenomenon that each person could be represented by one of the characters from Winnie the Pooh. So if you're not familiar with Winnie the Pooh, this is meaningless to you, but most people are. Now, in our group, we had it all. We have an Eeyore. We have a Pooh. I'm not going to say who's who. We have a Kanga and a rabbit and an owl. And yes, a Tigger, too. Actually, we had a small disagreement in our small group about which, one, which person in our group was the true Tigger. But the wonderful thing about Tiggers is I'm the only one. And so now that person is Piglet from now on. Uh, friend to all. Or as I like to call her, Tiglet. Because I'm a generous person. But I'm the only one. Think about all these characters from Winnie the Pooh, that, that amazing world that A.A. Milne made, as being the various aspects of one human personality. When you take Tigger out of that equation, when you remove fun and silliness and joy and joking, you become ultra-serious. You become the sad poo just stuck in the hole because he was trying to get at the honey and just bother. Life is, life is rough. Or Eeyore, you know, constantly kind of depressed. You know, we all need, every personality is made up of all these kind of things, but we all need fun. We all need that bouncy fun. Often we become self-conscious instead of losing ourselves in consciousness of how great God is and his love for us, or being others conscious. And we also, we also know people that are pretty much completely fixated on themselves. And that's not a great place to be. There's got to be a little bit more um, delight in, than that. I love the story of, uh, of King David that, that Becca shared. Um, he, he was reverent to God, a man after God's own heart, and he was ridiculously worshiping the God and embarrassing his girlfriend. So that's cool. 
When play is taken out, I think we just lose, like I said, the joy of Sabbath, the joy of Scripture, the joy of prayer. Now, so we laugh hard sometimes at our group prayer on Wednesdays. We're talking about life and different things that we're praying for each other about. And there's some funny stuff that happens. And we, there's a great aspect of play that comes into play, comes into play with prayer. When play gets removed, we soon become more like the Pharisees and the Sadducees in the New Testament. I've seen that happen with my own eyes. I've seen amazing Christian people who are so beautiful, so interesting, so creative, so fun, who are accepting of other people, as the Bible tells us to be, giving grace to one another, to love those around them. So when these people lose their fun, lose their joy, lose their delight, they begin by taking themselves too seriously, and they go from humility to becoming a harsh judge of other people. They wonder, how come these Christians around me aren't taking their faith as seriously as I am? You become focused on other people and how they're worshiping or what they're doing or not doing and losing that humility, right? Why are the, why are the people around me not as committed as I am? Why did that person not go up to take communion today? You know? Why did that person show up late to worship? What's wrong with them? I'm never late. This is the kind of stuff that starts creeping up when we lose our sense of fun and delight and play. And we've all done this. So I'm preaching to myself and to all of you. We're all susceptible to this stumbling block from the enemy. We can all lose the wonder that our names are written in the book of life. The Lamb's Book of Life. That's an that's a amazing and ridiculous thing that we are. Our names are written in God's book. And we lose the wonder and delight of that. We start thinking to ourselves subtly, and I'm doing pretty good. I'm actually, I think I'm worthy of that forgiveness and love. You know, I've, I've really earned this. And these other people, maybe not so much. It's that spirit of the Pharisee. So it becomes outward and proud instead of inward and humble. And it's so subtle. It's just so subtle and so insidious. I'm convinced it's one of Satan's best tricks of Christians in community. I've seen people go from one thing to another thing. And it's, it's, a, it's disturbing. I'll lose sight of the fact that we are in the end undeserving of grace and forgiveness. But nonetheless, God out of his great love for us has lavishly poured out his love on us, his forgiveness on us who look to Jesus. Now, we haven't earned this thing. This is by grace. It's by grace you have been saved, not by works. And that doesn't, that's not supposed to make us feel like a worm. That's supposed to make us feel awesome that God put his love on us. God set his love on us, even us. I love the Apostle Paul, the writer of most of the New Testament. He said, um, God's done this for me, even me, the chief of sinners, Paul had a good self-esteem. He had a good self-image. He didn't think of himself as being a worm worthy of being crushed by someone's foot. He, he was a confident person that said things like, follow my example as I follow Christ. That's confidence. But he's, he remembered, I am the chief of sinners. It's all by grace. And that can, that can really lead to joy. That can lead to not taking yourself so seriously. Not beating yourself up so, so much. <laughs> um, 
not being hard, so hard on yourself, not being so hard on other people. Losing fun, losing joy makes everything black and white, drab. And it becomes a harsh environment for everybody. We've all been in organizations and groups and even families where there's a judgmental atmosphere and people are policing one another, everyone else's faith journey, because they forgot that their job is not to police other people's faith journey. It's to keep their eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of their faith, to remain humble, to remember, it says in Scripture, remember the height from which you fell. God caught you. God forgave you. He loves you. If you're this person, loved by God, but not having earned that love, all you have is love. That's all you have. You don't have a basis for judging other people. The Holy Spirit's job is to convict people from sin, of their sins. It's not our job to go around policing other people and convicting them of their sin. There's a great book by Philip Yancey called What's So Amazing About Grace. It's a book that I read soon after I came to Christ. I recommend the book still. But an alcoholic friend of Philip Yancey once said to him, When I'm late to church, people turn around and stare at me with frowns of disapproval. I get the clear message that I am not as responsible as they are. When I'm late to AA, the meeting comes to a halt. Everyone jumps up to hug and welcome me. They realize that my lateness may be a sign that I almost didn't make it. When I show up, it proves that my desperate need for them won out over my desperate need for alcohol. You know, that's, a, that's quite a statement. But every day, wonderful, grace-filled, loving Christians slip subtly into this outward focus and lose sight of the gospel truth that is central to our faith. Central. The whole book of Galatians is about how this is central. And the book of Galatians says, you can become bewitched by going the other direction. So instead of looking at the darkness in our own hearts, which causes us to rejoice in the wonder of the love, grace, and forgiveness God has poured into our lives, um, we look outward, criticize, judge, look down on people in their journeys. You know, I, I really have took this to heart since I read that quote from Phil Yancey. Recently, I reread that quote. Um, when we see someone in church who shows up late or doesn't appear to have it all together like we might think we do, instead of judging them harshly and accusing them in our minds and hearts, we should just rejoice that they showed up and think of how we can love and encourage them in their journey. Because we don't know the circumstances of other people's lives. We really don't. We don't know that people are scared and fearful and paralyzed by fear, facing a health issue that they haven't told anyone about, dealing with a past trauma, or that they're having serious fights with their spouse that are getting worse and it's a little bit scary to them, or that they're struggling with suicidal thoughts, depression, substance abuse issues that just kind of are consuming them. So I think that since we don't really know what people are going through, we should instead rejoice that they are here, embrace them, and love on them. So, so that if in fact they need someone to love them, to pray for them, to support them, to hear their confession of sin, we can do it. Now we can minister to them. When one member of the church is stuck, the church is stuck. You know, we are, we belong to one another. We're a body. 
So one of your internal organs can't decide not to function anymore and cooperate with the other internal organs. It kills the body. When one person is stuck, the team is stuck. The rough edges a person brings to fellowship with them are things that can be smoothed out by love and grace, not fixed by harsh critiques and condemnation. When someone feels love and acceptance from others, they, they feel the love and acceptance that comes from God. Because the love and acceptance we give to one another is a pale reflection of the love and acceptance that God has for people. But when people see us do that for them, they realize that God can do that for them too. I am very thankful to not have, to have friends that are not harsh and judgmental, but who I can share my struggles with, and people that still love me, still pray for me, restore me, hear my confession of sin, and pronounce that God forgives you. Um, now, where would I be without those Christians in my life? But the, that, I feel bad for that poor person that does not have people around them that represent God's love and grace to them. They become ever more isolated and do not feel any hope of being restored. I believe that this self-seriousness, this self-consciousness and self-focus, when this comes into play, any, any hope of fun or carefreeness goes by the wayside and it ruins everything. And you do not have to be a tigger to appreciate the need for fun in your life. Um, but as I said, I when I've gotten to know people, you get surprised by different parts of them that pop out because they feel comfortable and accepted and loved. But they're not going to show you those parts if you're going to be that person that sucks the oxygen from the room. Now, everyone in Pooh Corner needs a tigger in their life. Now, we, all want, we all want to be free. We want to lose ourselves in, in a in a, in a God consciousness and others consciousness and not be so self painfully self-conscious. We all want to be free. We all need to feel love and grace and acceptance in the midst of our own problems of sin and brokenness and imperfection because the truth is that God pours out his love and acceptance and grace on us without measure every single day. It says in the scriptures that God causes the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. Something I love to say in my sermons to illustrate what the gospel is all about is taking this verse in the scriptures that talk about our good deeds being like filthy rags when held up to God's purity, holiness, and righteousness. You know, by contrast, even our best efforts at goodness pale in comparison to God's pure light, to his righteousness. The gospel truth is that on your very best day as a Christian— when you are at your very best doing everything you think you should be doing and maybe even have some things you could be proud of in your life, that on that day, on those wonderful days, you are just as in need of God's grace as you are on your very worst day. You're just as in need because the, the distance between us and God is so vast. It can only be bridged by Jesus Christ, the perfect man. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. It's good to remind yourself sometimes that God knew all the sins you would commit in the future the day that he saved you. Remember the joy of your salvation? Those worship services when you first came to know Jesus? You kind of lose that through, through life, through pain, through sins. But God knew all that stuff was going to happen afterwards. He still saved you. You know? That's a good truth. 
We are all on this absolutely equal playing field. Our good deeds are like a drop of water in the ocean, and God's deeds are like the ocean. You know, our good deeds are like taking a step, and God's, God's righteousness and goodness to us is like from earth to the furthest star in our galaxy. And further, there's such an expanse between us and God, and Jesus has bridged that, that for us. So if you're struggling with taking yourself a little too seriously, let's join David. Ask him to restore unto us the joy of his salvation. David hit, David hit his rock bottom. He goes, oh, something's missing. I used to feel joy. I used to write worship songs, and now it's gone. And he went to God and said, restore unto me the joy of your salvation. Again, he doesn't say my salvation. He says God's salvation. It's God's work. Ask God to remind you about the height from which you have fallen. Think about, just think about the one, not to be more morbid or morose, but think about the things that God has delivered you from, forgiven you from, saved you from in your past. Like, wow, remember that? It's not to feel bad about yourself. It's to feel great about God's love and his help. God has saved us apart from anything we did to earn it. To receive that good news. Let the fun come back. There's a couple of scriptures I'd like to share. As sometimes in sermons you share scripture occasionally. Um, this is a different type of sermon. This is a topical sermon. But listen to these scriptures. Paul was so cautious about representing the amazing grace and forgiveness of God that he felt the need to remind people in Romans 6, 15 to 18. So what then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, whether you're a slave to sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God, though you used to be slaves to sin, you have now come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. It's like, do not be a slave. slave being a slave is not fun. Being a slave to various sin problems sucks the joy out of life completely. It leads to spiritual death. Sometimes it leads to physical death. Do not be a slave to sin. God set you free from the law and from sin. Make yourself a slave to righteousness. Inspired by God's radical acceptance of you and forgiveness of you while you were still in your sin, let that inspire you towards a life of holiness, of life, a life of trying to find out what pleases God and walking and following him. Philippians 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent and praiseworthy, think about these things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Rejoice. Have fun. Don't take yourself so seriously. Realize that God's love, grace, and forgiveness and radical acceptance of you has set you free. And use your freedom to draw near to God. Life can be a lot of fun. Life can be 
much more peaceful than it might be for you right now. You don't have to be a tigger to have a lot of fun in life. But as Jesse said, you do need to surrender your life to the God of all joy. If only they would take themselves a little less seriously than those Eeyores and the owls and the kangas and the piglets and the roo, all these creatures. They could focus, if we will focus on the amazing grace and love of God and allow that to transform us, you know, we can begin to be set free. And when we have, our, when we have discovered or rediscovered the beautiful truth of the gospel, we then get to mirror this love to those around us to show them who God is. I love Romans 15, 5 to 7. It says, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind towards each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to this. Accept one another, then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. To get the impact of that statement, you have to remember that while we were still dead in our sins, Christ died for us. He accepted us when we turned to him. And he's saying, radically accept the people around you just like I did for you through Jesus. Accept one another just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. And all of this is a way of talking about the idea of, of loving one another. Above all, it says in 1 Peter 4, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. It's not saying there's no sin in the fellowship, that there's no issues and problems. It's saying your job is to love and your love covers the multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. In this sermon, I've definitely focused on a different angle of, of fun than Ken did in the chapter. I want you to read this chapter. I think it could be really helpful to you. And the reason I focused on this is because I think that a lack of fun, a lack of joy in someone's life is truly someone that is not realizing and receiving the joy of their salvation by losing sight of the gospel. That's where misery begins. The love, grace, and radical acceptance of God is something we need to take to heart. Because when we believe these things by faith and walk as if they're true, we're, we're walking truly free. And I have a lot of compassion for people that are harsh with one another. Christians are harsh with one another because I know from experience that they are much harder on themselves than they are on other people. It's misery. But God wants us all to receive the gospel. To receive the good news that Jesus came to save sinners of whom I am the worst. You know, like Paul said. Jesus' mission statement was not to condemn the world, but to save the world. And his mission statement was to seek and save what was lost. That's good news. 
And when, we fall, when the joy of God's salvation is restored to us, all we can do is fall face down in gratefulness, in praise to the God who loved us and gave himself for us.